and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to talk about the 90-hour marathon summit in Brussels which led to a European recovery plan and what its results mean for the future of Europe in the world. I'm absolutely thrilled to be welcoming a special guest to the podcast in the form of Guntram Wolf, who is the director of Bruegel, and he's joining us from the Bodensee, but I think has been following the events in Brussels very closely. And also on this podcast from Warsaw, we have Piotr Buras, who's the head of ECFR's office there, as well as a senior policy fellow at ECFR. And from Madrid, we have José Ignacio Torreblanca, another head of an ECFR office, this one, the Madrid office, and also a senior policy fellow at ECFR. So thank you all very much for joining. Let's start with the positive side of things. We have a deal. European leaders managed to strike a deal on a package worth 1.8 trillion euros, which combines the multi-annual financial framework, in other words, the EU budget for the next few years, as well as an extraordinary recovery effort under the next generation EU label. Angela Merkel said that she's very happy and Emmanuel Macron said that the recovery plan is a historic change of our Europe and the Eurozone. So why don't we start with the overall framework of this deal? Guntram, you have been following many European budgets and lots of European councils in the past. Maybe you can just give us a short overview with what was decided in this deal and a first reaction to the question which Emmanuel Macron suggested. Do you think this is a historic change? Yeah, thanks, Mark, uh, for having me. And it's a pleasure to talk here. And as the economist, perhaps I start with the numbers, right, which to get them all straight. So it's 1.8 trillion euros. So that's a lot of zeros. It's 1,800 billion euros, which is essentially composed of two parts. I mean, one is the regular so-called multi-annual financial framework, which is basically the running EU budget. So that's essentially a bit more than a trillion. So 1,700 billion. That's, you know, just the regular roughly 1% per year of GDP that the EU spends on various programs. The new thing and the reason why it took so long is the 750 billion to be borrowed in the financial markets and then to be used to somehow boost the recovery and respond to the current pandemic and the economic downturn that the pandemic has induced. Just to get the 750 straight, this consists essentially of two numbers. So you can divide the 750 in two parts. 390 billion is in the form of grants. So that means, in other words, the EU, the European Commission will go on the capital markets, borrow money and use the money as transfers to countries. And another 360 is where the Commission goes on the markets, borrows and lends it on to countries. So this is the rough outline. Now, then every country gets a bit and you can think about the distribution of the spending. And, you know, there's many things one can critique. I think one of the perhaps criticisms that I would voice is that compared to the original commission proposal, quite a bit of spending for sort of European public goods, so research, helping regions that are affected by climate change. I mean, these things have been cut. 
But the core element, really, this transfer mechanism has been preserved. And I think that's really quite a big success. And since you asked me about Emmanuel Macron, I mean, I, I really think what it is, it is quite a new moment in Europe's history. And it's new in the sense that we haven't seen U-boring used for transfers to countries. And then, you know, basically that debt sitting on the balance sheet of the European Commission, essentially, based on the budget. And, you know, being paid back only in 30 years. So the final payback date is 2058. It will be paid back over a very, very long period. And so long-term borrowing to grant transfers to countries to support them with this pandemic at that scale and magnitude is really something new. I'm not sure I would talk of a Hamiltonian moment. I mean, Alexander Hamilton, the American finance minister, who in a sense invented U.S. debt, he went quite a bit further than we are going here. But... The reality is that the EU will become one of the biggest debt issuers in Europe. Only the three big countries, Germany, France and Italy, I believe, will be bigger and will manage bigger debt markets than the Commission. So it is quite a watershed moment. And in that sense, perhaps historic, it's not yet Hamiltonian, but certainly something that will be remembered in the history books. Great, thanks. So you raised lots of topics there, Gundram, which I want to go into in more detail. Be good to spend some time talking about the reaction in Southern Europe, the frugals, some of these questions around the rule of law in Eastern Europe, as well as the green and digital agendas that you talked about. But maybe before we do that, be good to just get a first reaction from both Nacho and Piotr. What did you make of the plan? This was received in Spain as a historic breakthrough both in terms of the European integration process in itself. As Gunnarsson this is not a Hamiltonian moment, but it's the closest you can get to a Hamiltonian moment in the European Union, taking into account that you're not a state and you're not wanting to do that. But the fact that, that the Commission will issue debt and then there will be European taxes in order to pay this back is no wonder historic. It's also historic in terms of the size of what has been approved compared to the last batch of cohesion funds approved or secured by the Spanish government. This is a, of a magnitude of a tenfold practical increase over the cohesion fund meant for Spain. And the last bit of it, I think, is that it, the government expects it will have a stabilizing function on the country, the economy, the coalition government. So it is very positive on that front as well. It's been a very, at least portrayed in the media, very personal or has been very personalized around Mark Rutte and the frugal and kind of this battle. But I think that even if it's been very personalized around that, it has not got nasty in terms of stereotypes or what we saw back in 2010-12 with, you know, North-South Protestant Catholics and so on. So even if it's been a tough negotiation, I don't think it, it is a negotiation or at least people saw and recognize each other's interests throughout the negotiation. So it has not left damages around. And, and now the big question is whether Spain and all these and all countries will be able to spend such an amount of money in the right way in such a limited time. This is the discussion now, how to absorb that quality money and also whether there will be conditionality that is associated to these reforms, which they will be. But will it be comparable or not to what happened back in 2010-12? Yeah, so we'll go more into these whole questions around conditionality a bit later. But Piotr, what's your kind of initial comments on the overall framework? 
From the Polish perspective, I think it has been great success as well. And both when it comes to the overall picture and the historic dimension of this deal, explained already by, by Guntram. And from the very you know national Polish perspective, Poland is one of the key beneficiaries, the main beneficiary of the overall budget. And what Polish government managed to achieve is to not to let the focus of the recovery funds and the whole budget shift too much towards those countries which were severely hit by, by the pandemic, which is, of course, one of the key controversies around the recovery fund. Some countries argued that they should be more focused on the needs of those countries which suffered most from the pandemic. Poland, of course, is one of those countries which will economically survive the pandemic probably in a much better shape than many others. So the risk for Poland was that the funds would be relatively smaller for Poland. And, but this, this has actually not happened. I mean, at least we can say that from the Polish perspective, this is a very generous budget. And the Polish government also claimed a huge success at the summit and also sees itself also in the role of the one who brought this success about. So this is, you know, a very basically positive record of the summit. We will probably go into more details on the rule of law, but the overall picture is this. Okay. Should we look a bit more at the frugals situation? Because we went into the summit with four frugals. Over the weekend, they became five as Finland joined the group. What did they get out of the group? Because at the beginning, they were saying they were against any money being given out as grants. In the end, they agreed to 390 billion, which is a pretty huge amount. But what did they manage to get in return for that concession, Guntram? Well, indeed, the Frugals came in with a strong negotiating position and they got quite a bit out of it. I mean, I think the first point they got is the reduction in the grants from 450 or 500 to 390. So that's already quite a sizable reduction. The second, I think, very important point is they got a rebate and the rebate on the regular budget. So the regular multi-annual financial framework. They received quite a substantial rebate, which will be important not only in the next seven years, but it really also sets a precedent for the future MFF, so the future multi-annual financial frameworks. When in seven years, leaders come together and debate the next seven-year plan, they will start from a much larger rebate. And that really matters because this debt is being paid back out of the regular budget, right? And so if you have a rebate on the regular budget, you actually pay back less of the debt. And so that's quite important. And I would say the last, uh, the third point is, and there I'm actually quite with them, they have insisted quite strongly on strong mechanisms to monitor how the money is being spent. And while I don't agree with Mark Rutte that this should be you know, a national veto so that the Dutch can veto what the Italians are doing, I think this is really toxic. I do really think we need strong monitoring mechanisms. And what the EU agreed and what the European Council agreed in the end is a mechanism where the Commission can essentially come up with complaints and then the Council can decide with a qualified majority that this complaint is warranted and reduce payouts. So this is quite a strong monitoring mechanism, which I think is really needed. And, you know, any federal type of state 
would always have a control and really have a very, very close say on how money is spent. It's unthinkable that a German federal finance minister decides on a federal spending program and then the prime minister of Bavaria and the prime minister of Nordrhein-Westfalia just do with the money they receive whatever they want. No, this needs to be European spent and tightly controlled money. Otherwise, the political support will be gone. And I think they got quite a strong mechanism out of it. So sort of emergency break where member states can raise concerns based on what the commission is saying about the spending. That's right, but not unanimously, So, which is important. I think it needs majority, but not everybody has to agree. And Nacho, why did the Spanish government and the Italian government and the Greek government and the other governments who are very sceptical about conditionality in the wake of what happened with the euro crisis agree to that? Well, I think we shall not overlook the fact that this time is absolutely different in terms of the configuration of the positions and the preferences of the member states. I tend to contest the category of frugals because there were many countries which were supporting this budget and conditionality measures and so on, which are frugals as well if you look at how they manage their budgets and so on. I think we're missing something by just calling them frugals. This is a coalition of very intergovernmental member states who, and the way they see the European Union and the evolution of the European Union is what unites them. I mean, I think this is probably a band of remainers (laughs) within the European Union because Britain was still in the EU, we would have seen them, you know, kind of ganging around on many of these issues. So I think just to provoke the discussion a bit, I think the frugal misses the point. There are frugals, but this is not what explains what they do then. Yeah, I mean, they got substantial, if you allow me the joke, they got 25 billion per day of European Council meeting, which is not bad. You know, at the end, they managed to reduce the package or the transfers in 110 billion Euro, so it's quite substantial. But I think what is more important is, as said, that they've introduced not only the emergency break, which at the end is, I mean, it can be a very psychological mechanism and it can be the kind of a shadow of a veto or at least stop the clock thing around the table. But I think it's important that they have ensured, because of their intergovernmental nature and preferences, that the ECOFIN would also have a major say in approving these plans of recovery and resilience. So they have swallowed the idea of European taxes. And I think it's very interesting to see how will they deal with this down the road, because at some point they will have to decide whether this money is paid back with European taxes or with contributions from their budget. So now the ball is in their court on European taxes and so far they've been doing this by unanimity and blocking European taxes. Now if they block European taxes they will have to pay this out of their budget. But the discussion on conditionality, I think again, you know, to contradict to what people usually think coming from Spain, I think there is wide understanding in Spain because this is the way the European semester works, this is because how the national plan for for reforms work, that there will of course be conditionality, this is European money and it has to be spent around or on European goals. It was never believed in Spain, except by, I guess, a very few very uninformed people that this would just be money coming from heaven and you could do whatever you want with this. It's been misportrayed also in the press that this was the idea back at home in the countries which were likely to benefit most from this. So, Piotr, one of the big arguments was about this rule of law mechanism, something that you've written about a lot and have been talking about a lot in the last few months. Can you talk a bit about what happened with that? 
That's interesting because nobody knows. <laughs> there is communication war going on both within Poland and I think also at the EU level about how to interpret the results of the summit. But my interpretation is not a very pessimistic one because, I mean, there have been many voices saying that the rule of law mechanism is dead, that Orban and Morawiecki won at the summit and that basically we can forget about the rule of law conditionality. I think the opposite is true. I mean, we have a very important provision in the summit conclusion saying that a regime of conditionality, rule of law conditionality, needs to be put in place. There are no details about how such a mechanism of rule of law conditionality should work. But I wouldn't say that it is a mistake or that it is a sign of failure of the summit. I think it was probably very wise not to put the details of this mechanism on the agenda of the summit, because we need to remember that at the European Council, of course, you have the rule of unanimity. And if a very concrete proposal of the rule of law mechanism would have been part of the budget deal, Hungary or Poland could have blocked the whole package, not just the rule of law mechanism, but the whole package. This, as we know, did not take place. The package was agreed upon, and there is a provision that the European Council agreed on the rule of law mechanism that it should take place, and now the Council of the European Union should work on a concrete proposal on the basis of the ideas put forward by the European Commission. And the key factor here is that the decisions within the Council of the European Union are taken by the quality majority, which means that the countries which are most concerned by this mechanism, Poland and Hungary, will not be able to block it anymore. So I think my conclusion from the Council is this, that there is an important decision that it should take place. But now the game is not over. We are entering a new phase and mm. everything depends basically on the determination, especially of the German EU presidency. The question is, will Merkel endorse the interpretation of the summit results, which I laid out in the upcoming weeks and months? She did it in her first press conference. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen seconded. So basically, this is the interpretation which is prevailing at the EU level. Of course, Hungary and Poland believe that or want to believe that this rule of law mechanism was killed and that if it was to be reintroduced, unanimity in the European Council is required. But I don't think there's a majority view in the EU. And I think that, as said, German EU presidents should put it again on the agenda. The Commission should put forward a proposal, the one it's made already in 2018 or a reformed one. And this issue should be discussed further. And there is a very solid legal and political basis in the EU summit conclusions for that. We will see, of course, how this will develop. But the whole rule of law issue has also sparked a very intense, interesting debate in Poland. And that not only between the opposition and the government, but also within the government, where the hardliners in the government accused Prime Minister Morawiecki of having agreed upon something which he denies to have agreed. I mean, the rule of law mechanism. So there is this communication war and the war of interpretations going on even within Poland and within the ruling camp. So I'm sure we'll come back to these topics very soon. 
One of the things which Guntram mentioned in his opening remarks was about the future and to what extent the recovery plan is going to make Europe ready for green and a digital future. Nacho, what happened to the spending on those kind of future-facing parts of the European Commission's agenda? Well, I mean, there is good money for good projects for digital, but also for climate-friendly and the modernization of the country and so on. I mean, I think there is not a preoccupation about the quality of the money and the quantity, I think, of the money here. I think from a Spanish perspective, what worries me is that, and probably this is true also for Italy, let's see, also for France, is that because the three countries entered the crisis into or without enough of a fiscal margin to do the kind of things that other member states have been forced to do. And this is basically throwing helicopter money to the economy, sustaining salaries in order to prevent social disruption, sustaining businesses by massively injecting public money into those. I mean, the kind of things that though I understand that the European Commission and other member states do not want to fund because that's the reason why national budgets are there. But the truth is that these three countries did not have enough fiscal margin to do this. And especially in the case of Spain, unemployment is going to reach 20-something percent of the workforce. Let us see what the final figure is, because if you have new surges of corona and we're not able to save the tourist season, then it's going to be almost a whole year before these projects come in. And when these projects come in, they will be looking for high quality investments in high quality sectors. And by the time, you know, you may have an economy which is totally destroyed with a loss of GDP over 10%, even 12% and a massive fiscal deficit due to the need to sustain salaries and firms and SMEs during this period. So, you know, this is a huge opportunity to transform the country. And I think the discussion here is how to make sure that this money is not used to reconstruct the country because we don't need to reconstruct things which were wrong. We need this money to modernize the country. But, you know, in one year time, let us see, you know, what is the damage that this crisis has done to the economy and in which situation we are in order to be able to afford this kind of very luxury money. So, you know, I was in Brussels in a discussion and saying, look, you know, hydrogen batteries are fine. But when you have 4 million people in the service sector, mostly on the tourist sector, unemployed, you know, there is no easy way to create 4 million jobs out of our hydrogen batteries. What's your take on this, Guntran? Because that is one of the few sour points of what Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president, said when she was giving her press conference after she described it as regrettable that a lot of the top up funding for EU programs was cut compared to earlier proposals. I guess the first point really is for the jobs that, Nacho, you mentioned. Really, for those, the recovery fund, so the 390 billion plus the borrowing, is really meant to be targeted at those. So I think, in a sense, as always, when you have a big budget, lots of different goals get mixed, right? I mean, there's the macro stabilization goal, there's the investment goal, there's the greening goal, and there's the modernization goal innovation, friendliness, and so on and so forth. And I think what you, of course, can see when you compare the Commission proposal and the current European Council agreement, you see that some of those research spending and so on have been cut. Nevertheless, the bulk of the spending, even before, was supposed to go to countries with certain conditions. And so really the question is, 
how is the money going to be spent by those countries? And for example, on the greening, my colleagues at Bruegel certainly think uh, that there's still quite a lot of greening in there because it essentially consists of conditions and, you know, imposes certain direction of spending towards green spending. So in that sense, I think this still seems to be there. But perhaps I can say one word on the rule of law mechanism. I'm perhaps slightly less optimistic than Piotr is on that. I agree that the council has come to some wording that is quite strong in terms of the mechanism, but there's really two caveats, and I think you mentioned it. I mean, one is that the European Council itself shall come back to the issue, and that's a bit confusing because on the one hand it says the council should decide on a mechanism, but then it also says the European Council should come back to it. And so it's basically everybody can read whether or not it still requires unanimity or whether or not QMV is enough. And I think this ambiguity is a typical European ambiguity, which will have to be sorted out. But I don't think that fight is over. But the second reason why I'm a perhaps a little bit less optimistic than you are, Piotr, is that the basis for the rule of law mechanism is quite vague. I mean, the legal basis, there's only a loose reference to Article 2. So while before there were much more concrete ways of how to determine it. So I think in the end, what we have achieved and what we've received is a mechanism that can work, but it really requires a lot of politics to work. And yeah, I guess that's where the real crux is. Will we have enough political guts when a country does not respect the rule of law to actually stop paying money to that country? And that's the big political question. Gunter, I suppose one of the questions is what happens next? Because there's both questions about how this thing gets ratified by the European Parliament, but also if the Commission is going to borrow extra funding, it's going to need to expand its budget headroom, which will mean that national parliaments get involved. And then there are these questions about what kinds of debt it issues and these further refinements of how the money gets spent. What's the road from here onwards? What are the key steps? Yeah, indeed. So I think the first step is needs to be agreed by the European Parliament. So the European Parliament has to agree formally, as you know, only to the multi-annual financial framework, not to the 750 billion that we discussed today. But since it's a package, they were treated as a package and they have already signaled that they want to combine the two and really increase their leverage. And I think one point that the European Parliament wants to put more emphasis on is the rule of law mechanism for sure. Uh, the other point I think they will emphasize is the spending programs that have been cut, which is basically the research, the Just Transition Fund and InvestEU. So these are really the things um, the parliament wants to get out of it. And so I don't think the negotiations are completely over. The German presidency will have to still deal with the European parliament and have a big bit of back and forth. In terms of deciding about the borrowing money and the rest of the spending, what's going to happen on that? When do those decisions get made? So the borrowing, technically, it will start pretty soon. And the interesting thing is the European Council wants to spend the money much earlier than the Commission initially planned. The Commission plans initially were saying most of the spending would happen actually after 22 which, of course, wouldn't make it a cyclical instrument, but rather sort of a transfer and structural instrument. The European Council said a lot of the spending should happen in 21-22, which means they have to get going really, really fast. And the countries have to really, really fast actually come up with programs so that they can absorb that kind of money. So I think really, technically, it will be very, very challenging also for the countries 
to actually call in that money and make sure that the money can be spent quickly and efficiently. So I think that's the big challenge going forward. Okay, we have one thing left to do with this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. Piotr, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? On my bookshelf is a leftover from my holiday plans, which will not materialize because of the pandemic. I wanted to go to the Balkans and I wanted to read uh, The Balkans by Misha Glenny, classical, very good book on the panorama of the history of the Balkans in the last two centuries. And I'm still going to do it. And I think I can recommend it because it's a great book. Great. What about you, Nacho? I'm reading How to Lose a Country, The Seven Steps from Democracy to Dictatorship, <laughs> from SHML Curran. <laughs> Uplisting reading for the summer. And what about you, Guntram? Well, I'm reading uh, AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley and the New World Order by Kai-Fu Lee. But it's already two years old, but uh, I missed it two years ago, so I'm reading it this summer. Great. Fantastic. It's a very interesting read. So you're going to put up links to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know about it by writing about it on your social media page or ours, giving us a five-star review on whatever platform you've used to download the podcast on. But for now, from Guntram Wolf, Piotr Buras, Jose Ignacio Torreblanca, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this week's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Gabriela Volotskaita. Thank you very much. That was really great. Mm-hmm.